Hello and welcome to the fourth episode of the Gravescast. Uh, today I have a good friend of me on. Uh, her name is Mackenzie Maring and she is a horror aficionado, architecture graduate, and weirdly enough, a white cloth fanatic. For some reason she seemed to uh, pick up on the trend and she stands by it. Is there a particular reason you choose to endorse the brand, Ken's? Because it's good. Literally no other reason. I would never jump. I'm not like a bandwagoner, but I tried a white claw, and very first time I tried it, I honestly thought it was disgusting. And then I tried another one, and I fell in love with it. And now they are part of my basic diet. <laughs> part of your basic diet? Yep. That's some dedication right there. Maybe we should get sponsored by White Claw. We should actually. I think I would be a great spokesperson. Now I, I do have to say I just I don't understand the entire craze because I mean currently you have like Molson Coors coming out with their own seltzer brand, uh, Travis Scott is coming out with his own seltzer brand like hard seltzer I think it's called Cacti or something, and yeah, just it is. yeah everyone seems to be picking up on it and I don't fully understand it. Don't get me wrong I'm someone who loves like like I'll go to McDonald's and just get a soda water with my meal, no Sprite That's no nothing so. <laughs> I just, I don't understand why there's such a fascination over flavored alcohol water. Do you have, like, any insight onto that? I think the alcohol has a big part of it. Um, but I don't know, it's just, like, it grows on you. Like, I've tried other ones. Like, there's this one that's, like, aqua something that they sell at the beer store, and it's, like, knockoff White Claw. And it just, there's no flavor to it. It's disgusting. But White Claw just seems to have good flavor... And they go down easy, and you could have, like, four of them and not feel like you're getting bloated like you do from beer. Like, it's just... I think that actually might be the main thing. Like, you don't feel bloated after having them. Okay, so what was it like then going back to something like a Palm Bay? Because I can tell you when I sat there and took a break from Pop, going from... Honestly, going from, like, hard... Not hard water, but just going from soda water, like lemon water, to something like, I don't know, Mountain Dew Voltage, it... Kind of disgusting in a way, to be honest with you. It's too sweet. It's like you feel like your teeth are singing. Now, do you feel that on a regular basis, though? Because for me, I feel like you only notice it if you, like, go off of it. It's kind of like uh, you, you kind of take it what, for what it is. You kind of get desensitized until you come to realize it, right? Oh, yeah, for sure. No, like if I drink, like, a Palm Bay every single day and then went back to White Claw, White Claw would probably taste awful to me because I got used to, like, all the sweetness and the flavor of a Palm Bay. But, like, if I just suddenly had a Palm Bay with me right now, like, I honestly don't know if I could finish it. I think it would just be, I'd feel sick. Wow. I think maybe that has something to do with it, then. Maybe it's about that, like, healthy, active lifestyle, like, health conscious, staying low on calories and everything. Yeah, you know what? I tried that, and I lasted, I think, a month of watching calories, and then my boyfriend and I went to McDonald's, and that pretty much was the end of that. Wait, you gave up on the challenge? For, for all the viewers at home here, we, we set kind of like a, I guess more of a weight loss kind of healthy lifestyle challenge, I think what, back in December? November. November. Okay, well, I, I guess we did back then. We kind of put it off until the new year, and I guess none of us have really stuck to it that much. When did I lasted a month. When did you give up? Um, sometime middle of February, I think. I guess that's pretty typical. I mean, like, if for a lot of gyms, they'll get a surge in memberships in, like, January, and then by February, like, half of it, maybe, like, even 60% of it might actually fall off. Like, yeah, they just lose a, a lot. 
I don't know. It was kind of like, because I did the whole, like, I know literally, like, a New Year's resolution, like, you could have that literally any time in your life. Like, it could be, like, July, and you'd be like, you know what? I want to start a new thing. And that's literally the exact same idea as a New Year's resolution. But, like, I, I did the whole New Year's thing. Like, it was, like, January 1st, and I was like, you know what? I'm going to watch calories. I'm going to do, like, daily workout routines. And by summer, like, I'll be happy with my body. <laughs> And I got, like, I literally, like, a friend and I paid for this Mari workout home routine thing. You paid it for it? With, yeah, it was, like, $20 each or something. Oh, no. Um, and it came with two sets of, like, five-week workouts. And so I made it through the first, like, five weeks, and I was doing really good with it, and I was actually kind of, like, not noticing a difference, like, look-wise, but just, like, strength-wise. Like, I could actually, like, do a push-up, which is rare. Like, that's never happened in my life. But I started into, like, the second home guide, and at that time, like, work, like, everything kind of compiled. Like, work got really busy, um, I just got lazy, maybe, I don't know, and I sort of stopped watching calories, and I literally have not done a workout in, like, a month, so. Honestly, you know what? <laughs> Congratulations to you, you stayed on a lot longer than I did. I think I lasted maybe a good, like, three days or whatever, and I'm just trying to get back to it now. I feel like it's, I don't know, I feel like it's all about the proper motivation. Like, for me, I I lost, like, 50 pounds a couple of years ago, and the main motivation was I had, like, one friend make a comment or something, not even a hard comment or anything, but something along the lines of being overweight, and that was, like, the only thing that needed I needed to, like, get pushed in the right direction. And, I mean, I think I did, like, a bet or something where it's, like, if I lost, I had to give up junk food for a month, and then I just kind of ended up sticking with that, doing, like, a gym workout, I didn't even really eat junk food for another probably like six months or something. Like I'm good as like an on and off. I'm just, I'm awful when it comes to sitting there trying to moderate. I feel like a main, like the main issue with really anyone is they try and do too much too fast. Like they'll try and suddenly be like, okay, like starting tomorrow, I'm going to meal plan. No more junk food, no more carbs. I'm going to go for daily runs. Like they try and do all these things at once and it's fine for like a few weeks and then you just, you get burned out or you just you really crave a blizzard or something happens and you fold and you like are like you know what i'll give in just this once and that once becomes like every single day and you just you stop with your routine are you more of an on and off person then too because i mean 100 oh, percent. most like a lot of people they'll fall off when they you know it's it's kind of like uh you know, you go for three weeks and then you sit there, you screw up, you have a beer, you screw up, you have a bag of chips or something. And then people take that as the end. Whereas in reality, a lot of these groups are saying, make the small changes, treat yourself every so often. But I feel like for a lot of people, they look at it in kind of black and white terms and just, I either do it or I don't, which kind of, I guess in a way, kind of a toxic way of looking at it, right? Oh, yeah. I don't think like, I don't know, because I'll not necessarily follow these Instagram accounts, but you know the whole, like, recommended section? So it's like, oh, you should follow this person. And a lot of those, I don't know if it's the whole, like, your phone picks up on what you're talking about or anything, but <laughs> there'll be a lot of, like, recommended things where it's, like, fitness, uh, meal planning, how to lose 20 pounds, like, all these, like, fitness accounts, basically. And I'll, like, look at their accounts, and that'll almost, like, get me motivated again. I'll be like, I got this, I got this, I got this. And they'll, like, all those accounts show them like just doing one thing at a time kind of like none of them are like oh yeah like with their descriptions of like how they got to where they are they're like 
yeah, you know, take it one day at a time, like baby steps, and like you won't notice the difference right away, but just stick with it. And I don't know, I feel like that's where, like, myself included, most people just fail because they're like everything all at once. <laughs> and that's like what you're saying, it's like a whole black and white thing. It's, you think it's all or nothing, but like, you might not notice the difference for months, but then suddenly you look back on a picture and you're like, oh, hey. Oh my god, you're you're so right on that. <laughs> I'd say the worst thing about the Instagram stuff. I thought you were gonna kind of bring up the uh, kind of the body aspect of you know you need to look like a model or even those. Mm-hmm. Oh my gosh, do you get those keto accounts? It pisses me mm-hmm. off so much. It's they'll they'll sit there. They will take some like you know blonde model or whatever as the after picture, and then the before pictures. Someone you know you don't even know. It, it, it's literally like they'll they'll take a Latina girl and then have the after picture be like a Caucasian girl. It's that bad. Yeah, like, I know. There's never any true like before or after. I've seen very little accounts that actually do that. And somehow they still have like 6,000 followers or 8,000 or even I've seen them with like 30,000 followers. I've seen them up in like hundreds of thousands. Like really? so many people. Yeah, so many people buy into it. And, like, I get, like, the whole keto thing probably does actually work if you do it right. But it's, like, any of those kind of strict dietary restriction things, I feel like it's so hard to actually do that properly. Like, years ago, my boyfriend and I tried to go vegan because there was, like, we'd watch this documentary. There was tons of health benefits to it. And we were like, you know what, we're going to, let's try it. Why not? And we lasted almost a year, I think, doing it. And I literally could eat anything and not gain weight and it was amazing because your metabolism right yeah it was metabolism and also just what you were eating because you're not eating any dairy or meats like there's like nothing fatty really going into you really um yeah like and all the fats like they might be like good fats like from almonds or something i don't know but like it just you could eat so much more and you would not gain weight like it was insane um, and I don't know, like, it was good, but at the same time, like, we had to buy all these vitamins to try and, like, supplement what we just weren't getting anymore from all these other foods, and I feel like that's an issue with so many types of diets, like, you just, you end up in the long run hurting yourself more because you miss out on all these nutrients that you're technically meant to be getting. I would agree with you, but just going back to the idea of, um... What you were saying with you, you don't overeat as much. I'm just asking kind of like what what was it that you were eating for snack foods or whatever? Because I pretty much go vegan, but I'm still eating like a bag of sweet chili heat Doritos or something like that. So <laughs> I, I don't feel like there's anything stopping me just from going vegan. Maybe you like, I don't know, eat a block of cheese or something. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. Like I think I'm trying to remember what we would have for snack foods. Like we would buy like ice cream, but it would be like, coconut milk ice cream or soy milk ice cream or something along those lines and it's just it's in general healthier than real true ice cream um and then a lot of chips like we would eat chips like crazy so i guess that would probably cause us (laughs) but another thing was it's so hard to eat out places when you're vegan like you can't just go to mcdonald's like the only thing we could really get from mcdonald's would be fries um and same with like so many other places like you can't really just go into a pizza place and get a slice of pizza it forced you to make all these home-cooked meals that are definitely much better for you than anything processed on that side you know what i will give you that just as someone who is like pretty much has to follow a vegan diet 
uh, mm. just with the, like the milk and egg allergy, it is awful trying to eat out. Like I'm actually thankful for all the vegan stuff that's coming out now because that means that unless they have peanuts in the dish, I don't have to worry about my allergies. And a lot of people yeah. are becoming really conscious of the lifestyle as well. So when I go out to a restaurant, there tends to always be like two or three vegan dishes. So, you know, it just gives me an outlet. <laughs> it kind of helps me bypass the allergy aspect. So I'm kind of thankful for it to say the least. And I guess, you know, what, it might also be a kind of healthy diet as well. So you got to, you know, look out for that, right? Oh, yeah, for sure. Now, my, my pitch right now, going back to the White Claws, I think what we need to do is we need to pitch non-alcoholic White Claws. So, flavored water. Yeah, but I fun. feel like you could convince people to a point where they would buy the, the White Claw branded, like, non-alcoholic, uh, I guess, seltzer, and you could charge, what, like, $3 a can, two fifty a can? Oh, easily, easily. It would be, like, the greatest scam going on ever. Honestly, I've actually never understood non-alcoholic, basically alcoholic beverages. Like you go down like to the grocery store and you see like all these, like a very large variety of non-alcoholic beer. But like, what's the point of drinking beer if not for the alcohol? Like, who actually likes the taste of beer? Me. <laughs> You're odd. <laughs> really? I I don't know. I sat there and I bought a couple of them. Like I did like kind of the store brand, and then I did the Heineken Zero. And the Heineken Zero is actually pretty good. It tasted like a beer, and it had no alcohol in it. I feel like it really caters to people who don't want to drink, and just, you know, like, if you if you enjoy that taste, and, you know, you can join your friends at the beach or whatever, and, you know, bring your Heineken Zero or something, right? I suppose, yeah. I don't know. It's just, like, like, I don't hate the taste of beer, but at the same time, like, if I had a choice, like, I'm not drinking alcohol, and I have choice of anything to drink, I'm not going to pick non-alcoholic beer like i would go for like an ice cap or iced tea or something like i don't know I it, it's got to be a, a smaller demographic but the demographic exists or else you wouldn't have that you know eight to ten different brands in the grocery store right so yeah, i suppose it's it's interesting to say the least I won't, I won't say i know what the key demographic is but you know maybe you want to sit there and you know have a couple drinks but you want to keep getting that feeling throughout the party or something so maybe you like supplement a non-alcoholic beer in between like your actual drinking so maybe there is that option right oh maybe do you have any of those friends that like they just if they start drinking like they won't stop and they just will drink too much you could trick them into thinking that they're still drinking and having a great time by giving them all these like non-alcoholic beers without them knowing and they like think they're having a great time and like reality they're just keeping their current buzz going without going like blackout drunk honestly that's been done so many times in tv like one of the biggest things really? that comes to me yeah there's this old tv show they say that this is like the number one tv show that got canceled before its time it's called uh, freaks and geeks so it basically just kind of a uh, story about a high school just going between kind of the different social groups and everything so you had mm. people like uh seth rogan james franco or whatever they were the freaks kind of the burnouts and you see kind of their adventures and then honestly none of the other actors really hit stardom in regards to those two uh but they kind of were the nerds of the school or whatever so the second episode it's called like beers and weirs or something and it focuses on like the older sister and with the freaks trying to uh sit there and you know be cool with her friends so she hosts a party and they end up getting a keg so her like little brother who's in grade nine and didn't want them drinking. They sat there and they bought a keg of non-alcoholic beer and swapped it out. 
And of course, you know, for most of the people there, they still acted like they were drunk and everything. So sometimes it's just the placebo effect, right? Yeah. Yeah. Like I also, I also heard that there's been a few offices that there's people who like have a severe, not a severe caffeine addiction. Cause I feel like that might be overstating it, but we're really hooked on coffee. So what they did was they sat there and like, kind of like a timeline, like over a year or something, they sat there at, you know, the full like caffeinated coffee. And then they started mixing scoops of decaf in until by the end of it, it became full decaf almost as a way to kind of wean them off. Maybe I should try that. I've tried to like wean myself off coffee and it just fails. I get a really bad headache if I really decaf. But it's the placebo effect, right? Like it's it would have to be done without you knowing, or else you know it's decaf. Part of me feels like yeah, like placebo effect would kind of help the process along, but at the same time, like you're naturally weaning yourself off. Like I feel like in the like I have. Like, my dad's super addicted to coffee as well. And there's one time, like, we used to take yearly vacations to New Brunswick because I have a lot of family down there. So we drive down there, like, 18 hours there and back. And halfway along, I had this great aunt that lived somewhere, and I think it was in Ottawa or something. And so we stopped there, and one morning, she gave my dad coffee as we were heading out. And he was like, oh, great, perfect. Drank the coffee, and literally half an hour into the drive, he was complaining of a headache and like he just could not focus enough to drive and we had to pull over and stop at Tim's and he found out like a year later that she'd accidentally given him decaf. Really? It got that severe? Yeah. Oh yeah, he had to like he had to stop at a Tim's and he had no idea it was decaf. It was just he couldn't function. How many cups of coffee was that? Like how much does he drink on average per day? Now it's not as bad, but when he worked, it was, honestly, I think it was like 14 cups a day. It was oh ridiculous. Oh my god. It was ridiculous. Like, it was worse than me. Oh my god, that, that can kill you. <laughs> yeah, like, it was bad. It it depends on your genetics, though, because I know my, uh, I think my great uncle or something used to do that, or even my, like, grandparents, they used to do it, like, 13 cups of coffee, 14 cups of coffee a day, and just kind of, like, finish tradition, right? Yeah. And I don't think it was a case of just addiction. It was just kind of the culture down there. So, I mean, me, I'm only at like maybe four to maybe six a day if it's ridiculous enough. You're, you're probably around the same, right? Yeah, I think I'm I'm around whatever a pot of coffee is minus like maybe one cup that my boyfriend takes to work with him. Have you ever over-caffeinated before? When I used to work at Tim's, <laughs> yes, definitely. Like you were telling me the one time where you guys had like a what was it, an espresso shot contest or yeah, something? You guys got yeah, up to like oh God, that was years ago. But it was um one of those shifts that we had like there was I think three of us working until eleven PM and there's like no customers and we were like, you know what, fuck it, we're just gonna do an espresso shot challenge. Why not? And it was all free. Well, we pretended it was free, we probably should have paid for them. <laughs> but um we just kept taking espresso shots, and I, I know I got up to, I think it was either 11 or 13, I can't remember for sure. Oh my god. It was just, like, in the span of, like, an hour, and they were somewhere around the same level as me, and all, like, everything became funny, like, we were all almost, like, shaking, like, quivering, like, if you tried to pour a customer or a coffee, like, your hand was quivering trying to do it, like, it was a little bit scary, honestly, like, I've never been that overhyped, I guess, on caffeine, like, it was... 
an experience, <laughs> to say the least. I can't say, you know, I can't say I've never had that experience, because, I mean, I sat there the one time, and it was actually, we, we were at a coffee shop, and I just got my average, like, I think I got a red eye, which was kind of like a large black coffee with an espresso shot in it. I thought the waitress was a little cute, so I went back in to grab like a, for some reason, a triple espresso. So it ended up being like a five serving cup of coffee or something by the end of it. And I had, I had a job interview like a day and, or not a day and a half later, sorry, uh, an hour and a half later. Yeah. And I mean, honestly, like I just, it kind of felt like if you took too much melatonin, like it felt like everything was either like sped up or slowed down. It it just honestly kind of skewed my perception of reality. Thankfully, it kind of came down by the time of the job interview, but it was scary. Like I wasn't too shaky, but I definitely felt you know kind of wrong in the head, right? Well, you could tell because we were driving around after that, and you were like trying to prep for your interview, and you were just you could like tell that you were not with it fully. Like you almost seemed like fascinated by certain things that really wouldn't be normally fascinating, and then suddenly you almost like zone out. And then, like, you get, like, super excited about something. Like, it was like your emotions were all heightened or something. It's weird. Yeah, I just don't really know how to describe it, but I would not recommend it to anyone. <laughs> no, it's not no. a fun experience. I mean, I recommend coffee. Coffee is amazing. Coffee gets me through life. But there is a limit to how much coffee you should have. It's... As I it. Yeah, I think that's happened to me twice. And then since then, it's just the idea of don't have four cups of coffee at once or five cups of coffee. The average, I think, you should only you should only have, I think, four max or something like that, or like four hundred milligrams of caffeine in a day. Yeah, hmm. they messed up once, and there was a actually an experiment done where they were given the participants coffee. I think it was like a psych experiment or something, or testing reaction times. And okay. by accident, the researchers gave them instead of like 0.5 milligrams, they gave them 0.5 grams. And it actually took them to the hospital. They <laughs> they were getting kind of like psychosis symptoms from that. Scary stuff. Jeez. Yeah, that's a little bit intense. It really shows you everything in moderation, right? Yeah, that's a good point. Now, something we were discussing earlier. Uh, we're both kind of horror movie fanatics here, so... I kind of want to discuss uh, what we think makes a good horror movie, because I think our perceptions will be a lot different. Like, we, we have different tastes in horror movies. There's some I won't watch. I'll never touch Saw. That's, to me, just... <laughs> That's a great series. Really? Yeah, well, okay, one through five were really good. Six and seven got a little bit just bleh. But one through five, really good series. So, I mean, you see the difference. Like, to me, that's just... I get the aspect of horror that they're going for. I mean, it's a straight gore fest, but for me, it's it's scary, but that's just not the way I want to get scared, right? Like, it's more of a gross-out scare rather than an actual, like... It doesn't feel earned, I think, uh, right? Kind of, like... I don't know. I enjoyed Saw not so much. Like, the gore part, yeah, like, it was gory. It's Saw, it's built on the... Like, the entire franchise is built on the fact that it's this gory horror series, but... The story, like, I loved it for the story. Like, each movie kind of intertwined with the last, and, like, suddenly something, like, from the first movie would be, like, unveiled, and, like, the entire thing would suddenly make sense by, like, the fourth movie. Like, it all, like, the timelines overlapped, and it just, one movie kind of fed into the next, and... So you're telling me it's a real Shakespeare piece, then, eh? 
Sure, why not? Never was a fan of Shakespeare, but <laughs> sure. No, I mean, like, I thought, I read the plot to the first one, I thought that sounded decent, but then it kind of felt like it went more downhill the more they tried to play on the gore factor. I can't say I've ever seen the movie. I've sat there and watched a few scenes, like, there's one where he was trying to get over a reverse bear trap. I thought that was interesting, and, mm-hmm. you know, so that, that was a fun scene to watch, but just, I, I could not get through an entire movie. <laughs> So, I don't know. There were certain parts I did have to look away at. Like there was, I think it was in the fourth movie. I can't remember for sure. It's been a while since I've seen them. But it like anything that's like a really drawn out gory scene that just would get to me, and I'd have to look away. There's one where very start of the movie, there was a guy strapped down to a table with this blade just swinging back and forth like a pendulum above him, and it was slowly getting lower and lower, and then it would, like, slice slightly into his stomach, then slice slightly deeper, and then slightly deeper, uh-huh. and then something was flinging intestines across the room, like, that That one I had to look away from, that was just... That's so bleh. gross. <laughs> drawn out for a good, I think, five minutes, that it was just slowly cutting deeper and deeper into this poor person, but... So that's what you find to be a good horror movie? Is that what you look for? No, no. I I look for anything that's like a psychological thriller. I guess that's like the best way to put it. Okay, I, I think this is something we need to kind of hash out before we go on. You always love to say psychological thriller, and a lot of people I hear like to say, you know, there's a huge difference between a psychological thriller movie versus a horror movie. I feel like not a lot of people are willing to use the label like psychological horror. So I, how I never you- was, but like... Uh, my boyfriend, because that's like his type of horror movie, is like something that's psychological and like kind of like messes with you almost. And I never really like even thought of the term psychological thriller or psychological horror. But the more I think about it, like any horror movie, like horror movie that I like, it would be a psychological thriller. Like it. What would you consider the difference between a psychological thriller and a psychological horror? Because I feel like thriller might be the wrong term. Maybe psychological horror. I think it's like your typical horror movie with like, you know, ghost demons, someone trying to murder you, whatever. Psychological thriller, I think is, I don't know, it's like, um, kind of more something that's maybe based off like, I could picture like a psychological thriller being like, oh, you get lost in an amusement park and this clown is and there's all this like kind of really high stimulus scenes like flashing lights or something like just i don't know something that's almost like it gets your adrenaline pumping and psychological horror i feel like is something that's just like this deep-seated like fear in you i i read about this today just because i was interested because you both you and your boyfriend andrew were saying to me that you know something like oculus is considered a psychological thriller so i looked it up and i think what they distinguished was uh, a thriller is more so making you kind of anticipate the next situation giving you stress that way whereas horror kind of preys on the internalized feelings change to external so it's trying to scare you right so i think something like let's say shutter island you've seen shutter island right a while ago but yeah okay so for everyone who hasn't seen it the whole premise of shutter island is there's two detectives going to an island to find a patient that's gone missing but spoilers mind you uh throughout the movie you find out that one of the detectives is actually a patient at that asylum and they're just recreating his delusional fantasy as a way to getting through to him and making him realize that this whole detective thing isn't real 
So for something like that, I felt like it would be a psychological thriller because there, you know, it was messing with you. Uh, you're again anticipate like you're feeling that sense of anticipation getting to the end of the movie and finding that you know last reveal. But something like Oculus, which actually I would say is one of my f- favorite horror movies. Uh, it's something that I got shown by Mackenzie here, and it's a movie where basically. The father, like it takes place uh, involving a family. The father goes insane, and uh, basically they think that that the son killed the father. So the son goes to prison, and then years later, uh, the sister t- gets the, gets the son out, and they end up trying to take on this supernatural spirit in the mirror that almost makes them go crazy. So the entire movie is just one hallucination after the other. And there are horror elements. I mean, there's one scene where she bites into what she thinks is an apple, but she takes it away and you find out that it's like a light bulb or something. And then you find out that that was also just a sensory change, right? So I feel like something like that would be a horror, whereas you guys kind of call it a thriller, right? Yeah, I feel like a psychological thriller is just like a blanket term. Like, honestly, before tonight, I never even really heard the term psychological horror. Like, it's either just been a horror movie or a psychological thriller in my kind of vocabulary. Fair enough. I would go as far as to call that a horror, and I would say it's probably one of my favorite horror movies. So... I I agree with you there. That's actually one of mine, too. So for you, like, what are some of those things that go under the category of psychological thriller that, you know, would be your favorites? And you kind of give an idea of, like, what makes you enjoy them so much? Once again, kind of what makes a good horror movie, right? Yeah. Well, like I said, Oculus is definitely at the top like i've watched that one i think a good like four or five times now and it's just it's good every time i see it um I'm trying to think of like some other ones that i've watched recently some other ones that were really good there was one that i watched that was another kind of like it messed with your mind it was called mind Ga- mind games yeah it was mind games i watched this one a couple years ago and it was almost like this looping story so it was like these four or five teenagers kind of idea of cabin in the woods they all like met up and went away for the weekend and they discovered this abandoned mine and there's kind of like a few jump scares here and there like as they're kind of exploring this mine and then they end up finding themselves trapped in the mine which is like something just kind of this trippy moment for them and they try and escape but then they end up being trapped in the mine and at the very end, they do escape, and when they get back to where they had been staying, they see themselves all around like a campfire. So it's just this constant, like, looping story, and there's a bunch of plot twists. And I think any sort of horror movie that keeps you guessing is something that I can rewatch, and it intrigues me. So do you almost feel like you need that sense of mystique, that sense of unexpected? Definitely. Now... Is that something you're looking for out of a horror movie then? Because it seems like what you're touching on is more like you said before, the thriller aspect, right? It is, um, but that's what I look for in a horror movie is like the thriller side of it. Like, Does it scare you? Yes, but in a different way. Like okay. the typical horror movie is like, I don't know, a person looks in the mirror, they look up, nothing's in the mirror, they look down at the sink, <laughs> they look up to the mirror again, nothing's in the mirror, they look down to the sink, they look up to the mirror, oh my god, there's something in the mirror. And it, the music builds in a certain way, and it just, it's all, like, geared towards jump-scaring you. And, like, even though you know it's gonna happen, like, the build-up's very obvious, it's still, at least for me, it jump-scares me. And so, heart rate shoots up, and I'm like, oh my god, it'll squeal, or whatever. 
Yeah. Um, and then five seconds later, I'm like, okay, whatever, I'm fine. Keep watching the movie. But, like, a psychological thriller is one that after the fact, like, after watching it, I still have that, like, kind of deep-set, like, unease feeling. And I feel like that's, like, what makes it an actual, like, proper, I guess, psychological horror or any type, like, just a good horror movie to me is, like, yeah. that thing that leave me with that feeling of unease afterwards. I feel like I'd agree with you on that. I think it needs kind of, like, that balance of plot, but also the unexpected aspect. And then I feel like once you talk, like you've talked about the jump scare aspect, I think you need less jump scare and more kind of reliance on that atmosphere and that plot aspect, right? Because mm-hmm. we've seen so many movies. Like when we sat there and tried to find our last horror movie, we sat there for God maybe twenty minutes to a half hour trying to find something because we literally just put on a movie. Like I think the first one was The Nun or something, and oh, all we cool. saw was that five minutes of the nun killing people. Or the next movie, we saw, like, a haunted house, and, of course, you know, someone gets taken inside and killed, and it just, it doesn't, it doesn't feel satisfying. Well, that's the thing with a lot of movies, is they're predictable, like, they all follow the same sort of idea, like, group of teenagers or family move into a house, house is haunted, or something's happening to them, a whole bunch of jump scares happen, and most of the people die, and, like, one person happens to live, and then jump scare right at the end. Like, so many movies follow that kind of plot line, or if you can even call it a plot line, that they just rely on jump scare, jump scare, jump scare. And then you're like, oh my god, that was a horror movie. But But I feel like that's maybe the audience that they're going towards, because a lot of the horror movie aspect is it's cheap to make, you don't need a lot of effort going into it, and then really, like, your target audience is you're getting people that are like, you know, I want to be scared. Kind of like the going to an amusement park type thing. Instead of, you know, going to the amusement park and getting, you know, freaked out riding that roller coaster. Instead, you're going to the movie theater with your friends, you know, eating popcorn, you know, getting jump scared every second. Like, I feel like it might be more about the experience for them than the actual Maybe. plot itself, right? Maybe. Like, I don't know. And I find, like, at least personally, seeing a horror movie in theaters makes it a lot scarier to me. There's just something about, like, it's super dark, and, like, it's louder, the sounds are all around you. Like, I could watch probably any horror movie that would normally be bad in a theater, and it would scare me. Like, I would feel uneasy after. Like, I watched, um, years ago, I watched Paranormal Activity 4 when it came out in theaters. And honestly, that is a horrible movie. I tried rewatching it, like, sometime afterwards, because I remembered it being really good and scary. And I was like, this is a great horror movie. Like, I tried to get a friend to watch it. And we got, like, maybe halfway through it, and it was just, it was bad. Like, it just, nothing was happening, nothing was scary, the, like, plot was boring, like, it just, it wasn't good. But I remember screaming, like, when I went to see it in theaters, I guess, like, sign it was a bad movie, it was literally me, my friend, and two other girls in the theater, and that was it. There was four of us in this theater. Really? Like, it was the middle of a day on, like, a weekday, which, oh, okay. I guess, still, four people in the theater. Um, and I remember, like, all of us kind of chatting before the movie, we kind of got to know each other, and then as we were watching this movie, we were clutching each other, like, my friend and I were clutching these complete <laughs> strangers in this theater, watching it and screaming, and then afterwards, like, her dad was driving us home, and we stopped to get gas, and there's one scene in the movie where one of the jump scares was a car alarm going off, and as we were getting gas, I guess her dad had, like, bumped the van in a certain way, and the van car alarm went off, and I almost hit the roof of the van. Like, I just, I jumped so high 
because I like connected it back to that horror thing and I was like, oh my god, that's horrifying. And I just remembered that like scared feeling lasting for pretty much the rest of the day. And I tried rewatching it and it was just it was awful. But I feel like just something about watching a horror movie in theaters makes it scarier. I think it's the tricks it plays with you, right? Like there's no you're in a unique environment. There's no safety of your own house per se, and of course they amp up the volume and everything, right? So, yeah. I, I feel like you're almost putting yourself in a state where you expect to be scared, and therefore that kind of primes you for the actual jump scares themselves. Like mm-hmm. I certainly felt the same way. Like we we went and saw like Unfriended or something, and even that not being a very scary movie, like I got jump scared quite a few times. I. I well, I had that with Chucky as well when we went to see a <laughs> child's play. Fun fact, uh, we're, we're also very bad at navigating. That's one, <laughs> one trait we share that's very similar. So after we saw the new Chucky movie, uh, this, this is a movie that has freaked me out my entire life. Like We saw it for the first time, I think, in grade 9. And before that, I was scared for years. I Since then, I've still had like nightmares... Maybe like once a month or something. Like I've, it's definitely been like countless times, like dozens of times, and it's just that little fucker never dies. So after I saw it in grade nine, it ended up being like, I think a month after I kept my light on just because I was scared. You know, I'd round the corner, see Chucky in the hall or something, and it just really freaked me out. So we actually went and saw the reboot, uh, which kind of takes a different uh, approach to it. Instead of it being kind of a serial killer who uses voodoo to implement himself into the doll body, it's instead uh, just kind of a robot doll that goes haywire. So, I mean, we saw that. I thought it was a little more sad than scary. But after that, I mean, the the tensions were high. I you're you're probably pretty freaked out, right? Oh yeah. So like I've been jump scared right at the end of that movie with this damn doll just suddenly appearing trying to stab the kid. <laughs> Yeah, so I mean, tensions are high. We were driving home. It was actually a foggy night as well. And try to be ballsy, I just say, you know what? No, let's go home. You know, fuck the directions. Screw that. Everything, you know, we can make it home ourselves. Mind you, like. Coming from what, like Guelph? Like, it was like maybe like a 20 minute drive back, and it was like pretty much a straight shot. Like, we should not have gotten lost. Yeah. So we ended up getting lost, and. It was so foggy that we saw like a flashing light at the end of the street. And since the fog was so high, we had no sense of like going up or down. So we ended up going down a hill and the red light was gone and we started freaking out. We were like looking to the sides like, what's happening? What's happening? Like, is that something that's coming after us? And after a good like two minutes of driving, we get to the top of the hill and see the light again. And it just after watching the movie it just primes you and makes you think about the worst possible stuff well yeah the fog like you can't see anything around you and you just expect that like whatever like even if you know it's not gonna happen like you logically it's like not possible but like just every kind of horrible thought comes into your mind of like well i'm gonna die tonight like everything that i ever hated is out in that fog it's out to get me now, for you, what, what freaks you out the most? Because for me, it's not the actual idea of, like, you know, let's take Chucky. Chucky running into my room and, you know, stabbing me. That's not the freaked out aspect that I go after. For me, it's like I'm just I'm laying in bed. Let's say my door's open. And I get more freaked out by the idea that I'm going to see him, like, turn the corner and, like, stare at me. It's, I don't know. Do you get the same thing? 
kinda. Like, I get that when I, like, walk into, like, say it's, like, a dark basement or something. Like, say I'm at my parents' place, and I walk downstairs, and it's just pitch black in the basement. Like, it's the sort of, like, unknown. Like, if something just suddenly, like, appeared in front of me, the horror would be just, like, oh my god. Like, there's something there. What is there? I don't know what's there. And you just, like, every thought would be running through your mind. But, like, what you said with, like, if he just, like, round the corner and charged at you and stabbed you, like, that's kind of like a, <gasps> but then you'd be dead. So it's, like, the horror doesn't really, like, last. Like, you're just, like, you're scared for a split second, and then you're dead. So you're fine. So but, are, you, are you afraid of the aspect of them coming in and, like, attacking you, or are you just afraid of, the, like, kind of the presence, I guess? The presence, I guess, more so, because that's more unknown like i i like knowing <laughs> what's happening like even if it's like i know i'm being stabbed to death by this robotic doll like i'm like oh well okay like i know what's happening at least it's but. it's so weird I, I feel like that rings true for a lot of people because it's not the idea that you know you're gonna get stabbed it's the idea of who's behind that curtain like am i gonna walk into the bathroom and see that someone's behind the shower curtain and it's just, I, I think that lack of knowing the intention or something. Like in this example, you know, maybe Chucky's just chilling in front of your door, like sipping tea or something. He, he's fine. He, he's not going to kill you. But just that stare, like you don't know the intention. Mm-hmm. It creates that sense of mystique, right? It does. And I'm also an overthinker. So my mind <laughs> will go to the worst case scenario, no matter what I'm thinking about. And then it will come up with, like, a hundred variations of that worst-case scenario, and that just, like, makes me anxious for no reason. I wouldn't say no reason. I think it's it's a way of preparing yourself for that situation, right? Like, I actually I found this out from a therapist I was talking to, that my coping style tends to be something that falls more along the lines of thinking worst-case scenario. And for me, it works well in something like, you know, a school exam. It's like, okay, if I fail this exam and I'll prepare myself for it, I'll think, what's the worst that happens? Okay, maybe I fail the class, and then what's the worst that happens? I pay another $600. How is that going to affect me by the time I'm 40? So something like that just doesn't really raise my anxiety levels at all. But something like, I don't know, let's say I get like a small pain in my chest. Then you start going all WebMD on that stuff. And worst case scenario isn't like, oh, this is something that's going to pass. Worst case scenario is you have lung cancer. And... (laughs) So in that case, the coping style is just awful. So I, I feel like as a defense mechanism, as a way of coping, you know, thinking the worst case scenario might work in some regards, but for the most part, it, it can take you down some pretty bad paths, I'd say, especially when WebMD is involved. Never go oh, on WebMD. Is <laughs> um, but yeah, I think like worst case scenario, like if you're constantly thinking that way, it sucks when there's really no issue at all. But then in the one case that there is an issue, you've already almost like mentally prepared yourself. You're like, oh, okay, well, I thought of this scenario. I thought of how I get through it. So like in the like odd occurrence that something actually does happen, I think worst case scenario thinking actually might be beneficial. Have you ever had something that, that actually worked for? Not yet, but... Because I, I will back you up on that. Because for me, yeah. uh, for the viewers that don't know, I actually have a chronic dry eye condition, which is degenerative. So it doesn't get better, it gets worse over time. And when I first started getting eye pain, it was back in January, I kind of broke down. I thought worst case scenario, I thought, you know what, this is a chronic condition and what am I going to do? And I actually, (laughs) I sat there and set plans. I was thinking, you know what, well, I'll start a podcast, I'll do this, I'll need to stare at a screen, I'll read books more, stuff like that. And I almost went through that cycle of grief for about three days and 
Mind you, it, it was pretty unrealistic to think that, right? Just off of some eye pain. But when I went in to get my eyes checked, they confirmed that and they said, yeah, you know, you've got a chronic dry eye condition. So after that, I, I wasn't really that upset I, because I had already kind of prepared for that and gone through that stage. So it's, it's almost a way of, I guess, readying the scenario. Like you, you have the five stages of grief, which is like denial, uh, anger, bargaining, uh, or the other two, acceptance, and then kind of moving on. So you almost fast track that and do it in preparation before the event actually transpires. So it does suck in the moment, but as a coping mechanism, when it works, it works, right? Yes. Now, mind and you, like Chucky's never really going to come around your door, so I feel like you're doing that for nothing. <laughs> you never know. Could happen. Maybe that should be what I get you for Christmas. I won't tell you, and I'll just buy like a robotic doll. Oh my god. I had one time where I was in a Tim Hortons and I was just ordering my, I think it was just coffee or something. I turn around and there's this nine-year-old who's carrying a Chucky doll twice the size of him. I oh just turn God. around, I jump back and I looked at him. I was about to say like, what the fuck? And then I realized the kid's parents were behind him. I was like, no, can't do that. Not at all. And I just looked at him and I pointed at the kid and I was like, no, no. And then just turned back around. <laughs> It probably gave me about as much anxiety as you get just walking down to your parents' basement. Probably, if not more. I would be like an intense adrenaline shot right to the heart. Like, I feel like my heart would be racing, racing for like the next five minutes. I completely agree with you on that. Now, when it comes to kind of the horror movies, we're, we talked about plot a lot, but when it comes to characters, do you think the characters themselves matter a lot, or do you think it just comes down to the situation they're in? They don't both, like... I definitely find, like, in the long run with a movie, like, I will want to rewatch it, I will enjoy it more if I actually find, like, I can connect with the character, like, if they don't just seem like this empty, hollow, stereotypical human, like, <laughs> if I actually, like, you know what, you're relatable, I'm, like, rooting for them to live, and suddenly they die, and I'm heartbroken, like... I think that matters a lot in terms of like actually getting invested in the movie and the more invested you get the more you're going to feel like the horror side of what you, they want you to feel watching the movie because you're you know you're fully focused in on yeah. it and you're invested in it um, but at the same time like I find it kind of amusing watching certain movies where they just have those stereotypical characters like Cabin in the Woods actually might be one of my most watched horror movies even though it's absolute trash um, but I've seen that movie like 13 times just because I watched it because it was so bad. And then I made other people watch it because it was so bad, but it had such just like empty stereotypical characters. Like you had the stoner, you had the smart <laughs> girl, you had the ditzy blonde, you had the jock, like you had, you had the tough guy, like you had all these like stereotypical people that like you really did not get connected with any of them, but it was just entertaining in a different way yeah i definitely feel you on that i feel like if you enjoy that you definitely enjoy something like scream which the movie series just prey on every stereotype ever or even scary movie i suppose like the first scene of that movie is just some as you say ditzy blonde like running and she's running away from a guy in a ghost mask and she trips and she falls into like sprinklers or something and then you get like the slow motion of her running and it's just, it's ridiculous. It really shows you the type of stuff that they try to rely on when it comes to horror movies. Mm-hmm. 
Do you have like a favorite character or something? Because I mean, for me, I think, you know, definitely uh, the character development is important in a horror movie. And the ones that I've seen typically do have that those strong characters that you can relate to. Yeah, I don't think I have a favorite character in terms of, like, a horror movie. Like, any other, like, if it's a TV series or something, like, yeah, maybe I'll have a favorite. Um, but I kind of just, like, will pick and choose. It almost depends on my mood, I think. Like, I'll have, like, certain times that I'm, like, rooting for the asshole, and I become, like, connected to the asshole. And then there's other times <laughs> that like, I'm really rooting for, like, the innocent person to make it. And... I don't know, like, if I'm just, wa- a lot of times when I'm just watching a movie, it's not enough for me to actually decide if I have a favorite character. So are you telling me that for a TV show, like, let's say, I don't know, Grey's Anatomy, you'd have a favorite character before a horror movie series, you wouldn't? Oh, 100%. 100%. <sighs> Mind you, Grey's Anatomy is just a really damn good TV show. So. I mean, uh, opinions may differ on that, but I suppose everyone has the right to choose and their own opinions, <laughs> right? Oh, yeah. I, I would say for myself... Uh, Tiki, you've seen Halloween. I'm pretty sure most people have seen it if they've seen horror movies. Years ago. So Halloween, I think my favorite character from a horror movie would definitely have to be uh, Dr. Loomis there. Because it's just kind of the, the idea of that badass psychiatrist who... A lot of people look at Halloween like it's just, you know, Michael Myers going around and killing, you know, whoever you can see. But really it's the battle of good versus evil with Dr. Loomis having to, you know, restrain his patient, right? Like, he, he goes around, he sounds like a senile old man saying, watch out, this guy's coming, he's pure evil. And everyone's telling him, like, yeah, he's been locked up in an asylum for the last 15 years. He hasn't said a word. He just looks at the wall all day. But he knows the reality of it, and it's his, you know, quest to sit there and keep him restrained. So it's it's kind of interesting seeing that battle of character between the two of them. I think that's what makes Halloween such an excitable movie, along with the character development, right? Yeah, I guess, like, I don't know, you seem to just root for, like, the good guy. Like, what? Yeah, like, you're rooting for, like, even though he was kind of seen as a senile person, like, you're rooting for the guy that, in the end, is, like, he turns out to be the good guy. But, I don't know, like, part of it, like, I almost enjoy, at times, like, watching, like, I feel like you almost get, like, a completely different side of it if you just, like, almost, like, try and invest yourself in the bad guy, and, like, depends on the movie, depends how good it is. Like, certain ones, they are just, like, kind of just... You watch it once, and everything's just, like, right on the surface. But I find there are other movies that... If you kind of almost, like, watch the bad guy, like, you almost take pity on him, in a way. And you almost start, like, rooting for him to either become good, or... I don't know, for his issues to be resolved. Like, I've had, like, different experiences if you almost, like, try and root for the bad guy. So why do you why do you tend to do that then? Because that actually raises an interesting question: Is it better to have a movie where you know the motivation and you can almost relate to the supposed bad guy, or is it better to kind of keep them more on the mysterious side and just kind of keep them as the idea of like true evil or something like that? I think it's better to give them a story, like give them really? a reason why they're bad. Give them, I don't know, like a don't just. If they have a reason why they're bad, then they usually will have a reason to become either good again, or maybe in the long run, like, they seem bad, but the people they're killing off are actually the true evil or something. Like, I think it's better if they have some sort of backstory and they're not just an insane person that decided they like killing. I I agree with you in some ways, but I feel like there can also be too much of it, almost. Like, I'll 
once again bring up the example of Halloween. They sat there and in the first movie, you didn't really have a sense of what Michael's motivations were. He just, he was that killing machine. He had that unquenchable rage. Whereas they did a remake of Halloween and they spent the first maybe 20 minutes, half hour, setting up his backstory where, you know, he came from a brutal family, you know, stepfather who's an alcoholic and beats him and everything. And, you know, he's bullied at school and kind of an outsider. So you almost see that as the reason that he becomes bad. But then by the same token, it kind of takes away that fear factor almost. So, you know, you kind of ask yourself, like, how much character development is too much? And does it take away from the ultimate purpose of a horror movie, which in the end is to scare you, right? That's a fair point, actually. I never really considered it in that way. Because, yeah, I guess a lot of the times if I do start rooting for the bad guy, it I don't get the same... Like, that's what I mean by, like, you almost get a different experience watching it. Like, you don't get the horror side of it. You just get the storyline. Well, I mean, I've heard of people who actually will root for the bad guy, similar to how you're talking about. Not so that they get a different experience, but so they're less scared, I suppose. Almost like the idea of rooting for that killer is going to, like, you know, put them on your team or something. Won't have them come after you, right? Yeah. Oh, yeah. I guess I would, I don't know, like, if I'm watching, for me personally, like, if I'm watching a horror movie, especially for the first time, I do, I want to be scared by it. Like, it's almost like a love-hate relationship, because, like, I get jump-scared super easily. So, like, I know watching a horror movie, like, I will have, like, a death grip on a pillow, and I'll be like, <laughs> oh my god, I hate this, I hate this, I hate this, but I love this. So do you, do you have a movie, then, where you've seen it from both perspectives, where it's been you just watch it normally, and then you watch it from maybe, like, the killer's perspective, or that entity's perspective? Not so much horror movie-wise that I can think of off the top of my head. I know there are some out there. Um, but actually, my boyfriend and I were watching Prison Break right now. And, like, we're on, I think, season four. And a lot of those guys, like, they kind of introduce them for the first, like, half of the season as these bad guys. And so, like, for the like longest time you're watching it, and you're like, oh my god, I hate this person, they're horrible. And then eventually you start seeing that backstory to them and you kind of like almost change your opinion on some of them some of them just stay as horrible people like you're just like yeah you're just a dick like you should not live but you're, you're talking about gretchen morgan aren't you not far enough don't spoil that part oh okay but, so who are you talking about when it comes to being that person that um, you know you can relate to not relate to but see the good in i don't know well for a brief moment t-bag because yep. he's like the scum like he's like the worst of the worst in that and then at one point it almost like shows you his childhood and the way his dad was and how he grew up and he ends up like falling in love with this woman and then she gets him locked up and he like just desperately wants to find her and you think that's because he wants to kill her but really he just wants to start over and have a family with them he goes about it the wrong way but in the long run that's what he wants he just wants to get past everything and have a family and then you, like, at one point think he's about to murder them, but he ends up calling the cops and, like, telling them where they are, and then he escapes. So, like, uh, there's, like, certain things that almost, like, make you feel for him, and then he turns around and massacres, like, 50 people, and you're like, oh, well, no, you're still a dick, but... Yeah, I'll give you that. Uh, Teabag, I mean, I thought that was done well, but in most cases, I feel like a lot of people try and rely on that, showing that, oh, you know, they came from a bad family, oh, you know what, they had this bad experience with a bully, and I feel like stuff like that really cheapens the experience. I will I will give you points, I'd say, in Teabag's case, it was done pretty well, but I think in a lot of cases, it's just overdone, almost. 
That is true. Yeah, a lot of cases, like, especially if it's, like, relying on, like, the whole, like, high school storyline, a lot of cases <laughs> it is the, like, the bitch at high school has bitchy mother or something like that, and so she's just acting out at school because that's how she's treated at home. Now, would you would you look at something like that as a bad thing? Because, I mean, cliches are cliches for a reason, right? Like, I mind you with horror stuff, I mean, you know, that that girl running or the guy running from the killer and tripping, like, that's a, cli- that's a bad cliche. But the idea of coming from a broken household, that's something that a lot of people can relate to. I mean, how many, what in your past can set up these bad experiences other than the way you were raised, traumatic events? There's not a lot of stuff. There's not much else. There's not much else. I think if it's done right and it's done well, yeah, then like it's, it is, like you said, cliche for a reason. Especially the kind of like coming from a broken home, like that is relatable to a lot of people. And, like, personally, I don't have that experience. I'm lucky. Yeah. But I feel like people, like, if they're watching, say, a movie that, like, the main kind of bad person is coming from a broken household, they probably sympathize with that person a lot more than someone like myself. And if it's done right, then it tells a really good story. Now, would you feel more for the person if you saw their current struggles or their past struggles? Because something that you introduced me to, uh, (laughs) this is my segue to the next topic, uh, Requiem for a Dream. (laughs) So Requiem for a Dream is a movie where they kind of highlight the struggles of addiction. And this is a movie that you guys found at a garage sale, right? Uh, no, not originally. Originally, I think we just literally Googled, like, good horror movies, because we were trying to have a horror movie night, and Requiem for a Dream was top of a lot of lists. And we were like, you know what, why not? And we watched it, and it just, it fucked with us, like, hugely. Do you and want... then, like, shortly after, we found it at a garage sale, and bought it, and showed it to other people, and rewatched it, but... Do you want to kind of give an idea of the plot, just a brief synopsis, I suppose? Yeah, um, I'll try not to, like, super... There's not, I guess, any spoilers <laughs> no. of this, but... Um, basically, it's... Main two people are a mother and her son, and then the son's girlfriend. And so the mother... It kind of shows each of their personal struggles and kind of with addiction for all of them. So the mother is partially, like, she just is addicted to watching TV. She really wants to be on a TV show. She wants to, like, win a prize... And it's, like, kind of like a dream of hers. Um, But she's gained weight over the years, and she's like, oh, no, if I'm going to be on TV, then I really, I need to, like, slim down. And that becomes her sole focus, is I need to get skinny, I need to get skinny, I need to get skinny. And she'll do whatever it takes to do it, and she ends up going to this kind of whack-job doctor that gives her these pills that she becomes dependent on and starts overtaking that are meant to, like, almost be, I guess, fillers. I don't know exactly what they'd be called, but it's basically, like, pills that make you less hungry throughout mm. the day. Kind of suppressing? I guess, yeah. And she just becomes super addicted to those, and then between overtaking those and, like, lack of nourishment and just kind of overall, I guess, driving herself to insanity, she starts, like, seeing things, like the refrigerator almost, like, <laughs> becomes this evil presence in the house. Um, and it kind of just goes through, like, her struggle, and she ends up being taken into the hospital and I think eventually just declared almost insane at the end of it because of these pills and because she's so desperate to get on this TV show and be skinny. And meanwhile, her son is 
like, he had kind of feel for it, because he's actually trying to, like, make a living for himself, and, like, be able to, like, pay his mother back for all she's done for him, and he's also addicted to some sort of drug, I don't know if it's, like, morphine or meth or something, I'm not 100% sure, but he's addicted to something. I think it was heroin. Yeah, okay, heroin, and he ends up falling with, like, this kind of group of people that are selling drugs, and that starts, like, making him quite a bit of money, but then they need the money to, like, end up buying themselves more drugs, and he ends up, like, at one point taking, like, a bad shot of heroin, I guess, and his arm gets all infected, and... No spoilers, eh? <laughs> yeah, I guess, <laughs> I don't know, at the end of it, yeah, okay, spoilers, because <laughs> I don't know how to describe this otherwise, but at the end of it, it's, like, Basically, he ends up in prison, like, with his arm chopped off because of the infection. And then his girlfriend becomes addicted to drugs with him, and she ends up almost, like, getting pulled into, like, the... I don't know if... I don't want to call it the sex trade, but, like, it's... Almost it's like a porn... something around that. <laughs> along those lines, and she ends up, like, basically having sex to get drugs. And it's, like, it just... It is so realistic like it's something that could so easily happen for like any of their kind of stories if people deal with addiction and i don't know just something about like especially the very first time watching it and not really knowing what we were getting into it just i remember both of us just laying in like my boyfriend and i laying in bed just like staring at the ceiling unable to sleep because it just it made you think so hard about how easily that could just happen if you get addicted to heroin i guess or any sort of drug now mind you i i feel like first of all you've done a fantastic job highlighting the plot and everything i <laughs> feel like pardon spoiling the entire movie i think it needed to be said but for me i don't think it's actually as scary or as kind of mind-blowing as people make it out to be because when I first, when you first, you know, recommended the movie to me and said, you know, we gotta watch it together, you told me about this. You made it sound super scary, and I wouldn't actually watch it. I, I thought this was something that would mess me up. And every time I looked on Reddit and just reading through like r slash movies or something, I would find a list that was like, "What is the most messed up movie you've ever seen?" And every list, the top comment, the most upvoted comment was always "Requiem for a Dream." And I sent it to you every time, and I, I, I feel like I almost psyched myself out. So I did actually end up watching it. I uh, went over one time, and we were playing some beer pong. And so you, you might have gotten a little bit cocky, right? Okay, I won, <laughs> I won a game of beer pong, and I, it was a good game. Like It was a solid win for me, and I was like, you know what? <laughs> I've got this, and yeah, I got really cocky and did not win any other game, but you can continue. I think that might have been, like, the second game we ever, or it might have been, like, the third or fourth game we've ever played. I won, like, the last three, and she finally won that game. So, I was feeling confident, you know, three to one. I felt like my odds were pretty good. And I said, okay, you know what? You beat me. I'll watch Requiem for a Dream with you tonight. You lose, you buy the McDonald's for tonight. She proceeded to lose the game. Got McDonald's, uh, played again for like the beer pong ping pong balls, won again, uh, went again for some vaping pods, and eventually I just said, you know what, fine, I'll watch the movie. I think you probably spent about like $40 that day on bets. Oh, easily. I just, you know, I felt like if you were that inspired that you'd spend, you know, the $40 on bets, then you know what, it's worth watching. 
So I ended up watching the movie and mind you, you know, we had a couple drinks at that point, but I just, I didn't feel like it lived up to the hype. I thought, you know what, it was a good way of illustrating addiction and kind of doing it in its own way, right? Because it's not just the one character. You got the three different storylines where one, you know, is concerned about, you know, the stardom and losing weight. The other is just more trying to get on with their life. And then the girl just kind of gets dragged into it, right? Mm -hmm. So all the perspective, not all the perspectives, but they highlight a lot of different perspectives. But I just, to me, it felt like the storyline didn't really resonate with me and the characters weren't really too likable. So it didn't really affect me too much. Mind you, I, I won't watch it again. And <laughs> in the event that I did, it might actually hit me a little harder considering some of the other psych- psychological horrors I've watched really hit me hard, especially Oculus. But I think the main topic we were trying to come to here is uh, we actually had a dispute. I thought that, so for something like the D.A.R.E. program, which if you're not familiar with the D.A.R.E. program, the D.A.R.E. program is a program that they run in like grade five or six, kind of telling you, hey, don't do drugs. Hey, don't drink alcohol underage or, you know, you'll get messed up. I thought that something like Requiem for a Dream would actually be a better deterrent, but you felt the opposite way? Yeah, um, I think just because, yeah, it's realistic. Yeah, I think like, to certain people, maybe it would be a good deterrent, but also at times it almost glorified it. Like in the end, yeah, it made it like drugs bad, but it had a lot of aspects where like they were doing drugs, and as they were doing drugs, they ended up having a very happy life together. They moved in together. She started a clothing business. He was selling drugs, but he was making a lot of money, and that showed them like in love and happy. And drugs were almost like a main point of that and in that sense I feel like it almost glorified it and the D.A.R.E. program like I don't know D.A.R.E. program I still kind of think is kind of silly but <laughs> um, it at least is like okay like literally just don't do drugs like here is a whole like list of just horrible things that will happen if you do drugs if you drink underage if you just etc 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 and it's all like probable like it literally it happens to like literally like the person sitting next to you it could easily happen to them whereas how many times are you gonna know someone or are you yourself gonna get addicted to heroin take a bad shot of heroin end up in prison get your arm chopped off and your life sucks now i would, I would hope not more than once in your life <laughs> uh, ideally yeah you only have so many arms yeah well you go through that twice <laughs> I, I get what you're saying, but first of all, I should preface this by saying I did a little research, and it turns out D.A.R.E. was like 98% ineffective or something, so clearly it didn't work at all. I, w- I do understand where you're coming from in saying that, you know what, there was some glamorization in the movie, but I almost think that's what acts as a better deterrent, because... First of all, I think we both agree on this. Having Dare in like the fifth grade or sixth grade is just kind of moot at that point. I mean, you don't have it's a lot. Too early. Yeah. You don't you don't even fully understand or comprehend what they're trying to tell you. I mean, at grade five for me, it would be the type of thing where you go into the liquor store with your dad or mom, and you would just see these bottle like amber bottles or something. You never really knew what alcohol was. Yeah, you didn't know what it was. You didn't know what it could do. Like. No idea. 
So I almost feel like at that age, and we both agree on this, that it wasn't a good time. I think it would be more effective if it was in, you know, like eighth grade, ninth grade, etc. But to your point in saying that it almost glamorizes the addiction, I think that that's important because, you know, let, like, let's say it stopped like halfway through, then okay, you know what, it's a bad thing because it shows you can use your drugs to, you can use your drugs, you can get, you can use drugs to achieve your goal. But it shows that even though, you know, there might be temporary benefits or almost kind of temporary pleasure from it, the downfall is so much more severe. Like it, it, sh- it not only does it show you that, hey, you know what, like, yeah, you could try it, but it's going to screw you up for life. And I feel like with the D.A.R.E. program, it's almost the idea of, hey, don't do this, don't do this. They And, you know, it's it's just it's not an effective deterrent because especially at that age, you're, you know trying to be more mature you're trying to do stuff that adults won't let you do right so i almost feel like by saying like yeah don't drink beer it'll make you feel woozy and stuff like that you want that feeling and it might even incentivize you to go try beer and (laughs) i don't know grade seven or something like that yeah i see where you're coming from because like because you have no idea what they're talking about you're intrigued and you're like oh well but what does that feel like but i don't know i just I honestly feel like the main like downside of D.A.R.E. is what we've been saying. It was shown too early, and if you show that to, say, someone like going into high school, like, yeah, it probably still will be unaffected. Like, I don't know if there is really any really strong deterrent that will be unanimously effective for everybody, because everyone's affected in different ways, but I feel like the main reason is because we just didn't comprehend it. Like, so do you feel like it would still be more of a deterrent if, like, let's say in grade 8 you ran the program versus, like, let's say showing that movie in grade 8? Honestly, yeah, I do. Like, I think the movie is just, like, it it shows addiction and how, like, I feel like it's almost a better deterrent of, like, trying like not necessarily like don't do drugs it's more so like trying not to let yourself get addicted to anything or like so like tunnel vision something because like the one like the mom she was prescribed pills to make her feel full and that just took a huge turn and i don't it's just i don't know it's just i think it i still think it just isn't as good of a deterrent it's just it I just, you know, with D.A.R.E. program, I feel like it's the idea of keeping people away and saying that, you know what, you're cut off and that's the way they're going to deter versus something like, you know, Requiem for a Dream where it shows the reality. Something I would almost relate this to is something like abstinence-only education versus kind of safe safe sex education. Where in that, you know, they they acknowledge that, you know, sex is a thing that'll happen among high schoolers and, you know, stuff like that, right? So they almost try and teach them based off of that and acknowledging that it happens and just saying that, hey, you know what, if you're not careful, you can sit there and you can get chlamydia. You know, try spelling that for me because you can. (laughs) That was one of the posters in our school. But um, just kind of the message there is instead of trying to hide it away and almost make it seem like this prize... They just put it out into the open, and that way it's not glamorized, it's not mysterious anymore, 
And this is an incentive to say like, yeah, you know what? At the D.A.R.E. program, they should start doing it in grade nine, line up the needles, let everyone take a shot of heroin. But uh, overall, I just think it, you know, it comes down to the same idea of parents who sit there and allow their kid to drink in high school versus restricting them. Because by the time I've seen a lot of those kids as the dawn, like when they get to university, they've never drank before in their lives. And they've seen this as such a, you know, thing that's been hidden away from them that they go overboard, they get, they pass out, they black out because they drink too much just because it's been held away from them for so long. And I feel like, you know, if you just, you know, acknowledge that it's there, acknowledge the realities of it and teach them honestly, then they'll be more deterred than that person who, you know, has it held from them for their entire life. That's a fair point. That's a fair point, actually, because, like, I think learning sort of your limits, again, not with, like, all drugs, but, like, at least with alcohol, because that's something pretty much everyone does. Alcohol, crystal meth. Yeah, you know, all the... (laughs) All, all the soft stuff. Yeah. Um, like, learning kind of, like, your limits, either, like, not maybe not necessarily, like, with your parents, like, by all means with your parents, but, like, with, say, a small group of friends or with, like, family. Like, learning your limits, like, at home, somewhere that you're comfortable with people that you know and are comfortable with, so that if you go overboard, the worst thing that happens is you wake up and you have a horrible hangover. <laughs> like, I think that's definitely much safer than just sending, like, your kid off to university or college and like you said, they just, they've never really had alcohol and they're like, ooh, alcohol, and they drink like an entire bottle of vodka and pass out in this unknown dorm room and <laughs> God knows what else happens. Like, I definitely think it is better what you're saying. Like, I do agree that it shouldn't be completely hid away. Like, that's not the answer, but finding a way to show, like, the bad side of drugs and make it like, yeah, this is a reality, this happens, um, but also like, don't do it. Like, they need to find a balance. I would agree with you on that. I think maybe revising the program, and I think something akin to uh, Requiem for a Dream would be effective, but I feel like, yeah, it might go a little overboard, and you're really not going to have a lot of kids who are excited to try heroin, so I don't think you need to deter from that too much. I think the, uh, honestly, I'll, I'll say it for myself. I think the scariest thing I've ever heard about heroin itself is that apparently for some people, it's the highest point of their life. Like I heard one story of a guy who tried heroin and he got clean for, I think, about 10 years and his son was born like 10 years later. And he was saying in a comment or whatever that it still wasn't as satisfying to, you know, a shot of heroin. So just knowing... sun wasn't as good as a heroin shot. Yep. Wow. So just the idea of knowing that for some people, that heroin shot is the highest point they'll ever reach in their life is a scary thought. And I mean, to me, that's just as scary as the idea of like overdosing from it, to be honest with you. I wonder if a good solution, not maybe not solution, but like one option would be to bring in people that would like are part of say like an AA meeting or like whatever the equivalent of like any other drug is actually bring like someone like that in or have like a video of them talking about kind of the fact that they took heroin and all the kind of downsides like everything that kind of went to shit in the long run from it because then it's like an actual person like it's not just someone telling you like don't do it I think you have a point there 
but think of something like cigarettes where every time you pick up a pack of cigarettes it shows you you know that guy who has a hole in his throat because he had to get his vocal cords removed or you know the i don't know 10 year old child that's dying from lung cancer like they put those on the packages but they're not really an effective deterrent people still smoke so I almost feel like having a video and talking about the downsides might not be particularly effective. Maybe there's honestly I don't know if there is a good <laughs> solution because like literally the only way for like like the only way I really truly know about like the downsides of alcohol is by drinking too much alcohol and waking up the next morning like oh fuck that was a mistake. I would but, say like, it shouldn't be that way. I don't think you should have to you know get a scare with the lung cancer to realize that cigarettes aren't healthy for you. I think it's it's probably all about media perception, right? Because we've gotten to a point where, you know, in film noir and everything, it was, oh, look at the, you know, sexy detective there smoking a camel or something. And it, it almost kind of tied into the idea of sex appeal through advertising. Or, you know, here, have a cigarette after your meal because, you know, it's a good <laughs> dessert maybe. Um, That's not like a cigar. Like, it's almost like shown in, like, movies where, like, the people after, like, this, like, this fancy dude and after he finishes his meal... He steps into the study and pulls out a cigar, and he just kind of puffs on it. It just seems like his entire life is together because he's able to smoke a cigar now. See, and I think that's the point that we're illustrating here. I mean, we've gotten to a point where it's not that's glamorized, so it's you know made people realize that it's not a good thing to do, and really, I guess, detracted from people trying out cigarettes and stuff like that. But with stuff like alcohol, and I'm not going to say like heroin or something or crystal meth is glamorized in movies, but I think alcohol is a big one, right? Where it's, you know, it's not just here, have a beer. It's here, live your best uh, like Bud Life Light or sorry, Bud Light Life, where it's they're showing you you're at the beach, you're with all your friends, you're, you know, you're seeing all those hot girls on the other end of the beach and everything. Like it's, it sets up almost an experience and a fantasy that isn't the reality and you get so many people that are pulled into this idea that end up you know abusing alcohol right and just not being able to stop <laughs> yeah yeah so i mean it's, it's definitely not everyone but i think maybe the best way of doing it is not through you know a dare program not through a requiem for a dream i think it's just removing the glamour from you know everyday media that's yeah that's actually a good solution that's Cause that's just something that will get ingrained into you like if it's just every day you get home and you see a commercial of what you're saying with like the bud light and on a beach and everything like over time that's just like your perception of it so yeah exactly what you're saying with remove that and then you don't have any of like this ingrained like i don't know opinion of <laughs> what your life will be if you have this beer I just think it's, you know, a little too ingrained in our current society. I mean, even look at kids nowadays, and even when I was in, like, high school, a lot of the, you know, excitement of parties, I was watching something like American Pie or watching Neighbors, where it's, you know, you see these wild kids party. Like, it looked like the only way to have fun was to drink. Yeah. And there's such a close association with that nowadays. So I feel like removing that association will not fix the problem but it's it's a way to try and improve it oh definitely 100 percent. so i think we've come to a good conclusion on that now when it comes to like we were, we were talking about the idea that 
uh, with media, like it glamorizes it, but is it better for media to kind of have a balance and maybe, you know, show alcohol glamorized in some scenarios and, you know, it, you know, the side effects in other scenarios, or do you think it's better for it to just be realistic and maybe more on the depressing side? Cause you don't, you don't see a lot of, you don't see a lot of news about just, actually I'd, I'd argue that you do see a lot of news about alcoholism and, you know, the plagues that are infecting our world, right? Like, that's not even an alcohol-specific issue. Like, a lot of the media that we consume is negative. It's, you know, this person is being called out for saying this racist word or, you know, look at what Trump did or, you know, just all the negative stuff that happens. Do you think... I personally, like, I think it is important. Like, you need to show, like, you can't just blind people to any of the bad stuff going on in the world because shit goes on. It happens. But at the same time, like... I know personally for me, like, if I ever watch the news, it's just depressing story after depressing story after depressing story after depressing story, and I've honestly, I've just stopped watching the news. I'm just like, I don't, this is just making me sad. Like, I don't want to be seeing this as much as it's important for me to see it. If I saw, like, all this, like, depressing stuff happening, and, like, these are true stories, honestly, it's on the news. Well, that sounds bad, honestly, like, news. <laughs> biased i know but like it is happening in the world and it's being reported on but if it's like all showing these depressing things it deters me i don't want to be watching this but if they threw in say depressing story depressing story oh look puppies like just (laughs) feel good stories like you need to mix those in because the like the world isn't all shit like there's a lot of good happening over there too but that's not reported on like it's only bad, depressing, horrible things happening that people actually seem to want to report and want to share with the world, and it just, it makes the world seem like an awful place. You don't think that's important, though? I think it's important to show it, but I don't think it's important to only show it. Like, you need to show good and bad. I mean, I feel like you have a point there. Like, let's say something like politics, where, you know, they show the accomplishments of a candidate or something, and, you know, like, maybe they raise, you know, $3 million for Habitat for Humanity or something like that. I feel like that's certainly important to show, and, you know, it can, you know, kind of show that sense of community and make everyone feel good about themselves. But in my own personal opinion, I mean, do you really go to a news source for happiness? I mean, for me, I'd rather just, you know, look at cat pictures or watch my favorite TV show. I don't expect CBC or, you know, Fox News to make me gush and, you know, feel all happy inside. (laughs) I guess, but, like, a huge thing, like, I don't know how much, like, nowadays, but I know growing up, a huge thing was I would sit at the dinner table with my parents, and as we ate dinner, we'd watch the 6 o'clock news. Yeah. And I remember years ago, I don't know if it's just, like, my mind, like, warping it or something, but I remember, like watching and seeing like these funny stories these happy stories and then a few like sadder stories and then the weather and then another happy story and then maybe like something bad that's about to happen like it was a mix and i was tuned into all of it like i was watching it and now anytime if i like go over to their place and they have the news on it's just like uh this person set a fire global pandemic uh like just all these horrible things going on around the world and i almost like it just brings me down and I almost tune it out because I don't want to be feeling like that but if they put in like a few stories about like yeah okay this is happening this is happening but on the positive note this has happened and this has happened and it you kind of like are starting to feel down and then you like get kind of brought back up and that kind of keeps you tuned in to actually like 
again, this is at least for me, like I'll actually be tuned in and actually absorb the bad that's happening as well as the good. And it's not just like me just absorbing all this bad stuff and I'm just like, I just start blocking it out. So I'm like, I don't, I don't want to think about this. Hold on. So you're telling me like if you're watching a story on a bank robbery and they're saying, you know, well, you know, 20 people are murdered in this bank robbery. But on a positive note, it's going to be 20 outside on the weather. Like that, that doesn't make you feel happy? Well, you gotta like <laughs> scale it. <laughs> like, you gotta like, I don't know, like you need to show the bad, but I feel like with news, like they're looking for a story that they can really like, because like the news, like they're relying on people viewing it. And they're looking for a story that they can really kind of like sink into and really like get a response out of people if they're getting a response of people being like angry about stuff happening and all that like it's going to get more views it's going to probably get more results than say like showing like the good and the bad of it but if it's a bad story like i'm not necessarily saying like show the bad and then like say like okay bank robbed uh, 20 people murdered but he didn't take this one famous person's mind. Like, don't do, like, something like that, but, like, tell the bad story, get it out there, and then kind of, like, transition and, like, slowly build up to, like, something happier. Like, don't try and, like, erase the bad something good, but... I think... both. I think it's ideal, but I just... I, I don't think it's super sustainable for news sites to do this type of stuff because the only for the most part the things that get clicks are those controversial like you know bad stuff right so ideally like like you said you know there is a balance but it just seems like in today's world you're not going to click to see those happy puppies instead you just want to know like oh what did trump do this time oh what what happened in chicago there was a robbery like stuff like that right it's it's yes but like rid of that that's still going to be there that's still going to be something people can see but give them the option to see something good but i think show them the bad in the world i think for us in general like we're more attuned to the negative than the positive which might actually create this i mean they've done psych studies before where something as simple as looking for a happy face in you know a sea of mad faces or looking for a mad face in a sea of happy faces they find that people are actually able to find that mad like one mad face in the happy faces a lot quicker than the alternative because we're primed more for threat responses, I assume. So, like, you know, if you go out on the street and you see a tiger, like, you're going to be more attuned to that than a little kitty cat. So I think it might almost be a way of preparing ourselves for negative situations, which is what draws us to these, you know, shocking, bad, sad type news. Yes, I agree, in a sense. Um but as much as like yeah that's good you're like you know being trained to survive and trained to like act if you see something bad happening like i feel like it just brings things down like it i don't know if you're scrolling through like i don't know if i can directly tie this to like the news per se but just in general i feel like people are just constantly looking for the bad and everything like Say just you're looking at, like, Instagram or something. Like, I know, like, if I'm just flipping through Instagram on, like, random people's posts, if you go to the comment section, it's all the comments are just, like, 
people jumping on each other about things. Like, everyone's <laughs> just like, I don't think that's the right word, but everyone's just looking for the bad or like looking to nitpick or looking to cause some sort of controversial story or looking to, like, they want to be either a part of this negative thing that's happening or cause this negative thing that's happening. Like, no one's just like happy about like something. Everyone, like, everyone obviously has their own opinion, that's fine, but. Do you I feel... feel like people are like almost becoming desensitized to like the impacts that their opinions might have. Do you feel like it might be almost a contribution to the idea of like ego scaling where, you know, you go and you try and be negative so you can make yourself feel better? Because I think a lot of this is we hear a lot of these incidents like, oh, there was a robbery in the U.S. So there's a shooting in, I don't know, Syria or something. And that, I don't know, almost creates a sense of for some people nationalism like oh i'm happy that i live in canada away from all this stuff so do you almost think it's maybe like an ego reassuring type aspect that drives people to look for these negative news articles or you know kind of crap down other people's throats yeah yeah i do i think that's a huge huge aspect because everyone like is trying to make themselves feel better about themselves or about what's going on in their lives and to do that they can't just, like, I feel like people can't just be, like, happy and know, like, my life is good. I'm happy. They need to find out why someone else's life isn't happy and be like, ha, your life sucks, my life's good. Like, that shouldn't be a thing. It should be just, like, my life is good. I'm this. I'm good. Like, it. why do you need to prove that everyone else's life is shit in order for yours to be good? Why is that? I feel just, like... That might just be a thing in our culture, though, because we down the, you know, kind of North America sphere, we tend to have more of an individualist culture where it's it's you. It's, you know, you got to sit there and you got to get to the top of the company. You know, you're doing this for yourself. You know, you, you, you. It's all about you. Whereas you look at somewhere like, you know, more of the Asian type cultures where it's more collectivist and it's all more in a we type scenario, like your values are more family oriented, group oriented. It's not about you. It's about for the good of the group. So do you almost feel like that might contribute to the idea of trying to boost yourself up over others? Yeah. I like I don't know much about this, but like with what you're saying with like the whole culture of like boosting yourself up and like making yourself and your life better versus like making like a group of you like the community's life better like if there's some way that like we could almost like promote that sort of lifestyle of like making like kind of everyone around you and like the community's life if you make like your community's life better then you're going to be making your own life better yeah so like everyone's just like like every man for themselves basically because <laughs> that's a very lonely lifestyle to be living I feel like it's lonely, but it almost might be good in regards to promoting some type of competition. I mean, it, it knowing that you're in competition with someone else might almost inspire you to put in that extra effort. Like I, I can tell you for myself, I don't, I don't like falling below the status quo. When it comes to school, I'm not very uh, motivated, I, I would say, but I have had scenarios where it's, you know... Uh, the average kid in math class is getting like an 84 and I've gone below that. So I actually put in the efforts so that I get above the average because I guess my ego's taking a hit or something like that. So I feel like almost 
providing that aspect of healthy competition, which in that case, probably not so healthy, but I feel like the competition aspect might be important as long as it doesn't go too far and can almost work as, as a motivator. Yeah, competition is definitely not a bad thing. Like I had to take one class that was a business class, basically. It was like a small business thing. And a huge aspect of that is how in order for a business to thrive, it, there needs to be competition. Like you won't strive to do better and you won't strive to say make a better product if you aren't competing against someone else. Like if you're the only person that say you're the inventor of you know, Jello. I don't know why that's something thinking about mine. Inventor of Jello. Jello's great. It's tasty, it's sweet, it's delicious. And then someone else comes along and makes a better, more superior Jello. Then suddenly the first person that made Jello needs to step up their game and make something that's even better. But if no one else came along to invent something better or to improve upon this first invention, then you're just going to be stuck with this plain old jello. Like, there's there's going to be no growth of it. It's just going to be like, okay, well, we're the only one. It works. It sells. Great. We don't need to do anything more with this. And, like, no one would ever improve upon anything. So, yeah, competition is definitely good. Like, you need that. But at the same time, like, that sort of competition in the long run improves life for everybody it's not that like this competition solely improves your life it's it's kind of the indirect aspect of it right yeah like directly it benefits you but indirectly it you know benefits everyone else which is why i think in some regards the capital like a lot of people are you know anti-capitalist but i think without you know the capitalism aspect what's driving you to create progress like you look at someone like do you know you, most people tend to know do you know who elon musk is mm-hmm. so yeah even with elon musk you know he's in there and he's i think the richest person in the world right now but you got to look at what he's done he's created paypal he's worked on tesla as an engineer he's trying to send people to mars start a new colony there like this is a man who it's not like he won the lottery time and time again to get the money like he's worked for it And I feel like without the incentive of money, you wouldn't get to that point where, you know, we we have this type of innovation. So I feel like we're all indirectly benefited through, you know, this capitalism aspect of it. Mind you, it's not all good and everything because, I mean, you do get a lot of people that get screwed over by capitalism, especially, you know, the lower class and everything. But I feel like in cases like these, I would agree with you. I think, you know, the idea of competition drives innovation. Yeah, 100%. And I think it's something that's definitely really understated. I mean, when it, when it comes to your own life, you know, you're someone who's very passionate about your work and everything, and you're quite the hard worker, putting in, like, you know, 10-hour days, 12-hour days, and from what you told me, even, like, 14-hour days completing schoolwork. What, Depending, yeah. what drives you to do all that? I know I'll be disappointed in myself. Like, that's the main thing is, like, I'll set these higher standards for myself compared to like standards I set for other people and if I don't meet them then I'm I'm like hugely disappointed like it really brings me down and I don't know it's just I sort of set this like vision in my sights and I'm like you know what I'm like I'm going to achieve that and at the same time I look at like especially in school like I found school was, was more of a motivator than like actual work is for me yeah. But in school, like, a lot of my peers, we 
again, it goes back to competition. Like, we'd be, we'd help each other. Like, we'd constantly be, like, if someone has a question, like, we'd all, like, kind of pitch in, help out, work on stuff together. But we were also trying to be better than each other. So, as much as we were willing to help each other out, if we, like, hand in, say, a project, and I look at someone's, like, I'm in architecture, so I say I look at someone's design of a building and their renderings, and I'm like, oh, that's genius. If I had done that, mine would be so much better. And then in the future, I do that on mine, and it makes my work better. So I feel like it's just, like, that constant need to, sounds really self-centered, but to <laughs> be better. than <laughs> Like, I want to be better than the people around me. At the same time, I want to help them succeed and them to get better, but, like, the more that they get better, the more that I get better, almost. So that, that almost sounds like a ind- individualism perspective that's almost kind of... It, it seems like a balance between the both, right? A little bit, yeah. Like, you, you do get a lot of self-centered people who just care about benefiting themselves, like kind of crushing other people to get what they achieve. But the way you, you almost describe it is almost a way of kind of collectively improving each other and through mm-hmm. improving yourselves. Yeah. I'd say that's definitely the way to go then. Like, it doesn't, obviously, it doesn't work for everybody. Like, people probably find different things that will help them succeed. But for me personally, it's like, I feel like I almost, like, put myself into a competition with everyone else. But at the same time, like, I'm not just going to turn my back on everyone else in order to be better. I'm going to, because, like, I find I wouldn't really get better then. Like, I wouldn't succeed. I would just kind of, like, be doing my own thing, and maybe I'd slowly be getting better, but by helping other people out, they also end up helping me, because we'll get into a discussion about something, and I'll be kind of, I don't know, my mind will be opened up in a different way, or something, I don't, something along those lines, but I just find that, like, working together on certain things, like, you end up approaching stuff from different angles, and in the long run, like, having all these different angles that you can now approach, like, one problem helps you find a much better solution well said well said i i don't think i could put that any better i think you pretty much illustrated my thoughts on it as well should have made that my yearbook quote really should have unfortunately we didn't get yearbook quotes so you have had to do that for me (laughs) (laughs) now before we wrap up uh one of our viewers here not debo actually commented about dolls and demons being really spooky for him and that did actually raise a question for myself so i just asking you would you are you the type of person who would be willing to do a um ouija board honest okay i've actually thought about this before <laughs> oh my god <laughs> yes but not in my own house i don't believe in them i don't think it would work but i have that little voice in the back of my head that's like what if it does and then suddenly my house is, like, possessed by a demon. So I would love to try them, because I just want the experience of trying a Ouija board, but I'm not willing to risk possessing my house. That is honestly the closest I've heard to actually willing to do it. I've been, for everyone viewing, like, I've been so excited by the idea of doing a Ouija board, but I have never found anyone who is actually willing to do it. And most really? people, yeah, most people hold the same perspective as you. I mean, most people, they'll say, no, I'm not doing that straight up. But a lot of them say, yeah, I don't believe in this, but on the off chance that it's real. And I mean, it sounds like you have the same perspective. <laughs> because there's no concrete proof that it isn't real, but there's really no concrete proof that it is. So it's kind of like an unknown. <sighs> 
and I really don't want the way that I find out that yes, it is real to be unsuddenly possessed by this like poltergeist. It's it's interesting that a lot of people look at Ouija boards that way, but for something like driving, people know the risks. Like you have what like a one in three hundred chance or one in three thousand chance from dying from getting into that car, yet they still take that risk. Whereas for something like a Ouija board. What's really the real realistic aspect of you getting possessed by a poltergeist or something? It's not realistic at all. Yet people are more willing to hop into a car than they're willing to, you know, move their fingers around on a board and supposedly yes. talk to spirits. But you hop in a car, that car is getting you to work, getting you to school, getting you to see friends or family, getting you to Tim Hortons to get an ice cap. It's getting you somewhere that you need to be way faster than if you just decided, you know what, cars are too dangerous, I'm going to walk. Okay, but what if that spirit that you talk to on the Ouija board tells you that in two days you're going to be winning the lottery and you won't have to work anymore? Therefore, that actually benefited you a little more in the long term. But I would have won the lottery in two days anyways. I just wouldn't have known it ahead of time. But then you wouldn't have wasted those two days going to work. Or let's say, you know, for the sake of argument, two years. Okay, that's much more believable because two See? days of work is like whatever. <laughs> but until you try that Ouija board, you never know what fate's in store for you. That's a good point. But what if they also tell you that in one year you're suddenly going to die of cancer and then suddenly you're living your life scared you're going to die of cancer? It ruins your last year of living. Okay, way, way to take a depressing turn here. I thought spirits were supposed to be nice. Now you make me not want to do a Ouija board. <laughs> okay, but you know what? Then then it goes into the idea of coping styles. Yeah. Then you go into the idea of coping styles. Then if you know the worst case scenario, you can prepare for it a year in advance. Therefore, it's better than not knowing. Good point. Thanks for playing. And that brings us to the end of the fourth episode of the Gravescast. So thank you for joining me. You're a fantastic guest, Mackenzie. Oh, you're welcome. Anything you would like to plug before you go? Uh, I don't think so, unless I want to do like a little White Claw sponsorship right here at the end. <laughs> if we get some money. Yeah, White Claw sponsor us. Uh, we'll probably end up dividing it like 95.5. So. so I get 95? Uh, you get the 5. I don't think that's very fair since I brought up the White Claw. Well, you know what? You're the guest here. I make the decisions. So, mm, Anyways, fair. thank you for joining me. Uh, if you enjoyed the episode, feel free to drop a follow. We record this every other Friday at 8 p.m. EST. Uh, typically a different guest each week, sometimes solo, just to be determined type thing. Uh, if you want to watch the show after, then you can catch us on anchor.fm slash gravescast. And it'll end up being on Spotify, uh, iTunes, or really anywhere you listen to your podcast a few days after the podcast goes live. And if you want to leave a voice message with recommendations for topics, guest recommendations, etc., you can also do that at anchor.fm slash gravecast. We'd definitely love to hear from you guys, so feel free to drop a voicemail and might even play it on the show. So uh, thanks for joining us, and we will see you for the fifth episode in a couple of weeks. Bye, guys.